0: Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen and amen. This is the word of the living God. Now, we've been in this series, Ask, and we've been focusing on on growing in our life of prayer to become a praying people and a praying church. And a couple of Sundays ago, we began to look at this focus of how Jesus taught his disciples to pray with a very familiar Lord's Prayer. And we've been sharing that the Lord's Prayer is not just a, a prayer to pray, but there's also found in there a pattern of prayer for us. It is a brief but potent prayer. It is short, it is concise, but it contains so many rich truths for us. And in Luke's account of when Jesus shared the Lord's Prayer at another time, he tells them to pray, repeat after me, basically, repeat this verbatim. And here he's saying, here's how you can pray in a manner that when you ask the Father anything in my name, he will do it for you, as Jesus told his disciples he would do. And there's three basic components to the Lord's Prayer, a brief outline that we can follow. Now, we didn't read the last part of that in our passage today, but we are going to cover that uh, towards the end of today's message. But there's the preface to the Lord's Prayer found in that first line, our Father in heaven. It tells us immediately to whom we are addressing our prayer to, who it is that we are coming before. He is our Father. And where is he? He's in heaven. Now That's not just a physical geographic location, right? We know he is spirit, but it immediately tells us that this father that we're coming to, this loving father who cares for his people, is also the great, glorious, sovereign, and transcendent God of glory. Reminds us that we don't come before him in a flippant and casual manner. But by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, by the mercy of God, now we can beseech him as our loving father fact, you see in Matthew's uh, recounting here of the sermon, how many times in chapter 6, Jesus refers to him as our Father. He doesn't just say, when you come before God, he's like, when you come before our Father in prayer. And it's because of what Jesus has done for us. By forgiving our sins, by shedding his blood so that our sins could be atoned for. We being freely justified by faith, can now and as adopted children of God can come before him as our father. The 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 main component of the Lord's prayer are the petitions. There are six present there. The first three we covered last week and we said that those are God's concerns in prayer. That before we even begin to pray for the things that you and I have need of and and all of us have a laundry list, don't we, of things we pray for. Things were like, God, I need, I need, Lord, please, I beg of you. I want this, I need this, I got to have this, my bills have got to get paid. I'm sick in body, so-and-so sick in body. Lord, heal them, touch them, minister to someone, encourage, bless. We're to have God's concerns in mind, that his glory is in view, even before we begin to address those. And we looked at the first three of those petitions, which are God's concerns. And the first is for God's name. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, hallowed be your name. To hallow is to what? To set apart, to consecrate as holy, to treat as holy. We talked about God's name. That his name isn't just a label that is ascribed to him, so we have something to call him by. But his name is a reflection of everything that God is. Who he is, his character, his being, his very being is wrapped up in the very names that he revealed himself to us from. The second petitions are the means by which God's name is hallowed. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want to encourage you to go back and listen to that. If you weren't here last week, you can uh, kind of catch up where we are. But as a refresher to go back to those portions, because they are important. God's glory is the aim of our prayer. It is the bullseye of our prayer And before we come to talk about our needs and our concerns in prayer, like we're going to look at today, right, we want to focus on God's name, God's kingdom and God's will, because it is about the glory of God. Why is it about the glory of God? Well, we talked about it last week. We talk about God's glory because in doing so, we are reminded, number one, of who he is, but also of who we are. And what is our relationship in regards to this great God of glory? We are not the center of the universe. We're not the most important thing in all of God's creation. So our prayer isn't to be focused exclusively on everything that is about us, but chiefly and mainly and primarily on all that is about him. His name, his kingdom, and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just like God is worshipped and obeyed and everything that he commands is done by the angels in heaven, we desire that in our own life and in our own heart, in our church and in our world. Well, that's why the Lord's Prayer begins with God's concerns. And beloved, when we begin with God's concerns, it helps us in a very important area. Because many times, and I'm going to say most of the times, and I may be speaking for myself, I'm the only sinner here today. But our prayers are just so selfish and self-centered. I mean, we immediately come in prayer, and we're like, God, me, 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 myself, and I, you know? And, And look what I need, God. And look what I need for you to do for me. And when we begin with God's glory in view, when that's the target and the aim of all of our prayer, even when we come to him with our requests, right, it puts things in the proper place and order. We begin to pray for the necessities of life while still seeking the glory of God's name, kingdom, uh, and his will. You're reminded in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus begins there talking, hey, don't be anxious about anything, right? God knows what you have need of. But it reminds us what we're to do of first order and of first importance, and that was to seek the kingdom of God And his righteousness. And then he said, All the things that you have need of, those things will be added to you. So let's look at these next three petitions in the Lord's Prayer that have to do with our concerns, what you and I ought to be praying for. Okay? And the first is, Give us this day our daily bread. Well, what does that mean? Well, as I've been sharing in the last petitions, we've been looking at the Baptist Catechism as it addresses each one of these questions. So let's look at question 111 of the Baptist Catechism. What do we pray for in the fourth petition? And the answer is in the fourth petition, which is give us this day our daily bread. We pray that of God's free gift, we may receive a competent portion of the good things of this life and enjoy his blessings with them. I like that. I like that, right? A competent portion of the good things, right, and be able to enjoy the blessings with those things that God gives us. So what are we praying for when we pray, give us this day our daily bread? Well, first of all, one of the things that we're doing in praying this is we're beginning to see God as the source of all of life's necessities, and we're seeking God to provide them from his hand. We want God To provide these things for us because he is the source of everything you and I need in this life. Now, give us this day our daily bread. We think of bread. And I go, okay, these are ancient times. Are we supposed to be praying for bread? Wonder bread. Nature's own. Dave's killer bread. Or I call it killer Dave's bread. Sometimes I mess that up. But that's a really tasty one. Are we to pray for gluten-free alternatives? you know, in our bread choices here. what What is in view here in all of that? Well, yeah, it has to do with food, doesn't it? It has to do with the very nourishment you and I need for life. It's not just grain and bread, right? But but there's more to that as well. It's all of the things that you and I need in this physical realm for sustenance. Everything we need to sustain us. Think about how Jesus uses this term bread to represent all of the the material things of life for our sustenance in that time, if you recall, when he is tempted uh, in the wilderness by Satan. And he responds to Satan, and what does he say? Man shall not live by bread alone. Now, he's not just talking about, you know, bread itself, right? It has a greater meaning, a greater context that he's talking about there, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. There is a sustenance in view there that is just beyond physical nourishment and things we need for our physical well-being and strength, but, but also to our soul and to our, our, our spirit as well, right? There's the spiritual dimension uh, in view there. So I'm in agreement with most commentators and, and theologians that this term bread is a comprehensive term that extends to all of the necessities of life, body, soul, uh, and spirit, right? Nourishment for our body, right? Mental, emotional, uh, physical, spiritual uh, health, shelter, the need of of family and community, all of these things, all of these things. Remembering that God is the source of all those things. I'm reminded of of what God told his people through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18. He says to his people, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Now this is a very misquoted and misused scripture by prosperity gospel teachers out right? there oh he gives you the power to get wealth. that means I'm going to be filthy rich. No, it's a call for his people to remember where everything for our prosperity, for our well-being comes from. And he says, don't forget God. Why does he say don't forget? Because we do all the time, right? right? What you have has come to you by the divine hand of providence. Do not forget that. Do not forget that. So praying for our needs is acknowledging also that our entire dependence upon God for the provision of our physical needs. We get food, shelter, clothing, health, prosperity from where? From the hand of God. He is the source. So we should be praying for material things. We should be asking God for the things that we have need of in life, for our sustenance. There should be, there's no shame in that because he's telling us to do that. Jesus, remember, told his disciples in John's gospel, you ask anything. What is anything? Anything in my name, I'll do it. I'll do it, right? Right. But if we don't ask God for these things that He's told us to ask Him for, what does that mean? What does that say about us? Well, for one thing, we think that we can get these things for ourselves. We begin to think that, well, we're responsible to take care of business on our own here. Take care of things for ourselves. This this demonstration in that particular posture and attitude when we don't ask God for these things that We are self-sufficient and self-reliant and can act independently of God. Or we might think that God is just unconcerned, that he doesn't care about these basic needs we have in life. He's indifferent to them. And some of you might think, well, I'm really only supposed to come to God for the really big deal things the really important things of life, and asking for daily bread, that just seems too trivial a thing for this great and glorious God. So why am I even going to bother him with that? He's too busy with dealing with the wars and the the bigger things of his church that I can't come to him and ask for these things, but he's telling us to do that. So when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we acknowledge that God is exactly who Jesus said at the preface to this prayer, our father, a loving father who does care about your material needs. He cares, brothers and sisters. Maybe you haven't been praying for those things. Maybe you've adopted one of those postures and attitudes of either indifference or just like, well, I'm supposed to do it on my own here and, and you know, God's given me a brain and God's given me ability, so I just need to go after those things myself. I don't really need to pray about those things that are in my own power to get. I can go shopping at Walmart or Aldi's or Publix or Winn-Dixie or wherever you go, right? Or shop on Amazon and get the material and physical things I need in life. But that attitude of self-reliance and self-sufficiency is antithetical to the posture of a true follower of Jesus Christ because all of our life is lived in dependence of him and even that which you say you you think you're getting yourself at Walmart, Publix, all these Amazon or wherever it is you shop and get things from you're failing to recognize the true source of every good thing in life and every blessing in life that that those things are coming to you by the hand of God via those vehicles but they're coming from God himself so he is a loving father who does care about our material needs and we can indeed pray for our material needs to be met because our Father told us to seek him for those things. Now, interesting, he says, give us this day our daily bread. Then just say, give us this bread. Give us this sandwich. A tasty pub sub, ham and Swiss cheese and mayo and lettuce, tomatoes and that lovely salad dressing that they put on there. Or tasty chicken tenders from Huey Magoo's. Or God's chicken at Chick-fil-A. Except today. You know. Daily. We don't pray for things just for, let me say, I'm going to pray for my bread for the month. Or for, even for the week. Or for my provisions for the year. There's something in this aspect that Jesus is saying, give us this day our daily bread. That you and I are to seek God daily for the necessities of life. Why? Why? What is that expression? But even for today, what I need, have need of today, I need it from Him. I'm depending on Him for that. That this life of dependence isn't something I do once a year, or once a month, or once a week. But every single day of my walk with the Lord is lived in complete dependence upon God for today's provision. Why is that? Well, if this aspect of giving us this day our daily bread is more than just physical sustenance, and it extends to more than that itself, then the reality is you and I are weak and needy Every single day. You don't eat today and hope that that's going to last you for the week or the month or the year, do you? And I know some of us can store fat pretty well, you know, but others don't. But that's not going to last you, is it? We're wired to eat every single day. We need nourishment every single day. We have to eat now for strength And to keep going on and on here. And we need to come before him daily in dependence because we are weak and needy in every aspect of our life. Day by day, reliance is being taught in the prayer. Think about how Jesus expands this in Matthew chapter 6, 25 through 34, where he, he writes, Do not be anxious about tomorrow. Like you have today, he says, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Sufficient for today, right, is the trouble we have. Why are you worried about tomorrow? It's today that you need to seek the Lord for. It's today that you need help from God. It's today that you need him to provide the daily bread that you need. Now, this doesn't exclude planning. This doesn't exclude preparation and, and, and uh, planning for the future and storing up things and saving things. That's, that's just being prudent in life. But that's not the only thing we're asked to do here. Prayer doesn't replace planning and work. But when we pray, we're acknowledging, God, we are dependent upon you, that if you don't provide, we're done for. And we're coming to you as our source. And because you're our source and because you're our father, then I'm not going to worry about tomorrow. Oh, and we're tempted to worry about tomorrow, aren't we? Every day is a temptation to worry about tomorrow. Every day, right, we're thinking and become anxious. And what do we need to do every day is come back to this place of humble dependence upon our father who loves and cares for us and provides everything that you and I have need of. That's why Jesus says, don't worry. He has to tell us not to worry because we do. We do. And when we worry and when we give into that worry, we're no longer living in dependence of God. We're living independent of God. And that's not a good place to be. So praying, give us this day our daily bread, keeps us from becoming practicing atheists. Because the reality is, come on, brothers and sisters, when everything is going okay. Like there's a, there's a nice padding in the savings account. Like I got enough money here for a cruise. I a nice vacation on the horizon over here. Or I can get that toy that I want. That thing that I want. Right? You open the pantry doors and they're stocked. And the fridge is full. And you have more than enough. That's usually the time we stop praying. Give us this day our daily bread. That's the time where we become, in essence, practicing, practicing atheists, tending to forget about God. This is, again, back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, what God warned his people about. Look at this in 11 through 14 of Deuteronomy 8. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God. Again, you forget by not keeping his commandments and his rules and statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full... And have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply. Isn't it nice when your herds and flocks multiply? And your silver and gold is multiplied. I like that one. And all that you have is multiplied. Then your heart, what? Be lifted up. What does that mean? You become self-reliant, self-sufficient. Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. You forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's what he's saying. Look, all of these things that you're going to experience are blessings from me. They come from me. When you get into the land, I promise you, you are going to have more than enough. It is going to go extremely well with you. Your herds and your flocks will be without number. Your silver and gold is just sitting there, but it's like multiplying. Multiplying. And what's going to happen? You're going to get lifted up. You're going to get puffed up with pride. And you're going to forget. And you're going to forget. And this is exactly the same thing Jesus is telling us here. In this petition, give us this day our daily bread. Remember where those things come from. Remember who is the source of all of your sustenance. So here's some tips. I'm going to call them here how you can pray for this petition, give us this day our daily bread. And the first is is an attitude, a disposition we have talked about, uh, especially in this past year when we went through 1 Timothy, and we looked at also in our community groups as well when we went through Philippians. And that is contentment. Learn to be content with what you have and to be content in any and every situation. That is key be able to come to God in, in this daily prayer of dependence on, God, you know what I have need of before I even ask. That's what Jesus said before he even gave us this pattern of prayer. But I have to come to you because all of these things that I need, you're going to provide them. They're coming from your hand. But when I come to him with this attitude of contentment in life, right where it's like I'm not coming from a place of desperation, Because I don't have the things I want, or the things I see that other brother and sister being blessed with, right? And I don't have that, and so I I want that, which really is just covet, right? I'm coveting what someone else has. But when, when I'm content with what God has given me in life, right, isn't that what Paul writes in First in Timothy uh, chapter 6? But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now, we talked about that. Food and clothing is not the maximum number of things a Christian is supposed to possess, Right, But food and contentment is the basic requirement for a follower of Jesus to be content. If you have that, with that you will be content. But man, we're not content. Because I need that other thing. When I have that other thing, then I'll be content. But that's the wrong attitude coming into prayer. Give us, Lord, what do I need for today? That is what I need and that you will provide. Secondly, give thanks to the Lord in everything, right? This is the the posture, the attitude of of gratitude. Of of being thankful in everything, right? First Thessalonians 5:18, give thanks in all circumstances at all times. Why do we pray before meals? It's not so that God will remove the calories. Right, or to make that extremely fat dish healthy to your body, you know, or man, I'm gonna, if I eat this whole coconut cake, you know, uh, God's going to take care of me, and my my blood sugar level won't spike, and my diabetes flare up, or whatever. No, what is what is what are we giving? We are giving thanks that God has provided this for us. So it's appropriate to give thanks, right, before meals. It's, it's appropriate to give thanks when we receive things. It's appropriate to give thanks when you receive your paycheck, and you might go, well, I. I worked for this. I traded in hours of my time to this company for these things. No, even that is from the Lord who has blessed you with employment, again, as a conduit to supply the things he is resourcing you with. Give thanks in all things. Give thanks for your job. Give thanks for your clothing. Give thanks for your home. Give thanks for your car. Oh, it's not a new car. Oh, it's got a few issues. Give them thanks regardless. Give thanks for your job. Stop complaining about your job. There's some of you who I hear say all the time, I hate my job. No Christian should say I hate my job. Are there displeasing things and unpleasant things and frustrating things? Of course. We know from the curse in Genesis chapter 3, work is going to be hard. The sweat of our brow thorns and thistles, right? We know that in this world. Nothing's going to come easy to us. However, right, we work unto the Lord, and we're to work unto the glory of God. We're we're to work as if the Lord He really is, is our employer, is our master, is the one we are seeking to please. So be thankful for your job. It's easier to pray then for the things concerning your job when you approach it with the right heart attitude. Does God know you have problems at work? Of course. But pray about those things. You feel like you're not making enough? Pray about that. You have a problem with a coworker? You have a conflict with your boss? Pray for your coworker. Pray for your boss and remember who it is that gave you your employment. Third, pray, right? Pray for your material and physical needs with a view to God's glory. Again, the aim of these things isn't just for my own enrichment, right, but for God to to supply us with the things that we need in order to serve him more, to worship him, to glorify him with our life. God delights in giving things to his children because he gets glory from those things. And what does it do? It increases gratitude in the saints of God, in his children, Right? To serve him and to worship him because he is worthy of those things. Right? Give us this day our daily bread. That's the third, uh, the first petition in that second category there, and the fourth petition in the Lord's Prayer. Now, here's the second one of those petitions as it relates to our concerns. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Now he's not talking about your mortgage here <laughs> or your credit card debt or your car loan, right? This is about sin, isn't it? Our sin debt. We'll talk about that in a moment now, this petition and the next one uh speak to the needs of our soul and that last petition, by and large we're we're talking about the physical needs, the material things that we need in life. This one here though is. Speaking about and prioritizing, really, our spiritual needs. And what is our greatest spiritual need? What do our souls most need? Well, deliverance from sin's penalty and deliverance from sin's power. And that's the focus of these two petitions. The Catechism Question 112, what do we pray for in the fifth petition? What is Jesus teaching us here? The answer in the fifth petition, which is, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. We pray that God, for Christ's sake, would freely pardon all our sins, which we are rather encouraged to ask because by his grace, we are enabled from the heart to forgive others. Let's look at a few elements of this. There are some who would argue that um, we we no longer need to confess our sins that uh, confessing our sin, in essence, is a lack of faith because Christ has already forgiven us of our sins. Didn't Christ die for us already? If we've received Christ, if we've trusted Christ, hasn't he already forgiven our sins past, present, and future? Hasn't his blood already cleansed us of our sins? Why do we need to continually confess our sins and ask for forgiveness? Have you ever thought about that? Well... In order to understand this petition, it's very similar to what we had to look at in the second petition, Your Kingdom Come. There we talked about the already not yet reality of the rule and reign of Christ and the aspect of his kingdom being now and also not yet. We have to look at this in the same way. There is an already reality to our salvation and a not-yet-one, not one fully realized. This is what Scripture teaches us. This is what the apostolic writers instruct us in here, that we have been saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved. We were justified, we are being sanctified, we will be glorified. There's a past, present, and future aspect to our salvation. We've been saved from the penalty of sin, we are being saved from the power of sin now, And one day, ultimately, when we're glorified, we will be saved from the presence of sin. It won't be anymore. Praise God. I can't wait for that. right? But God's Word teaches us that all aspects of our salvation are as good as done because of what Christ has accomplished for us. Scripture speaks of all of these different realities of our our salvation in a sense that can all be said that they were done in the past tense. In the work that when Jesus said, it is finished, all of those aspects of our salvation were finished, were accomplished. Yet we know, right, in reality, we have not fully realized those things. We have not yet been glorified, have we? We are not completely holy, are we? I know some of you think you are. Your spouse will say otherwise. Right? We're not fully being made perfect yet, right? There is an already reality. We've already been justified positionally. I am I am in Christ. I am adopted child of God. I'm seated with Christ in the heavenly places. I've received all of the spiritual blessings, right? That I've been blessed with in, in the heavenly realm in Christ Jesus. But we know we don't have all of it yet. Because in Ephesians chapter 1, after, after he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Then he says, oh, but you've received the Spirit as a down payment, a guarantor, a guarantee of our inheritance until when? Until we acquire possession of it. Have we acquired possession of our full inheritance right now? No, it is not yet. But in one sense, we already have. Is that a riddle? No. It's just we can't really fully grasp our minds around these things, right? Um, Though we've been delivered from sin, though we've been delivered from sin's penalty, what happens? We still still sin. Oh, I know there's some folks out there say I don't sin any longer. I think God's word tells us about some of those people who say they no longer sin. God's word says the truth of God is not in them. Maybe you say you have no sin, right? Uh, and, And that's why this part of the prayer is forgive us our debt. What's the debt? Well, we have a debt because that's what sin is. It's a debt. It's an obligation, a failed obligation owed to God. What is God owed? God is owed obedience. God is owed our worship. God is owed our fullest and complete devotion, right? And service. And whenever we fail in these areas, and what, what all creatures, every one of us, owes God, we incur a debt. And unfortunately for us, that is not a debt that we can pay because we don't measure up to the righteousness of God and the righteous requirements of God. So when it comes to this aspect, forgive us our debts, we're recognizing that we do have a debt right and the right response in dealing with that debt is confession and seeking forgiveness right and in doing that who do we turn to we turn to the one who paid our sin debt the debt that you and I could not pay right so we need to be delivered from the penalty of sin this is exactly what Jesus has done for us he paid the penalty for all of our sins Past, present, and future. But because we've not yet been made perfect, we've not attained the perfect righteousness, right, in our sanctification, in how God is is bringing us into glory and growing us in godliness, it is right that we continue to make confession for our present sins, right, to receive the forgiveness already purchased for us by Christ Jesus. Now, if our attitude and our posture is we don't really need to continue to confess our sins because he's already paid for that, then John's writing here in 1 John chapter 1 makes no sense. Verse 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9. If, now this is conditional, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. And just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice that conditional statement is present tense. If we confess our sins presently, we are forgiven of our sins and cleansed from all unrighteousness. You and I are in need of ongoing confession and forgiveness because we continue to sin. Now, here's the difference. The forgiveness that we are asking for when we sin and make confession as believers, as children of God, as those who've trusted Jesus Christ, we are not seeking forgiveness or pardon from an angry judge. We're seeking forgiveness from a grieved father. Big difference. We know that in Christ Jesus, the wrath that was due us was laid upon Christ. He was punished for our sins. So when we're asking God to forgive us, it's not, please God, you know, I don't want your wrath upon me. No, we're no longer under wrath. We've been saved from the wrath that was rightly due us. Christ absorbed that on our behalf. But we're coming to our Father now. Parents, when your children disobey you, do you hate your children? Should they now suffer your wrath? Should should you beat them mercilessly as punishment? I know you feel like doing that sometimes. But you don't, right? Because you love them. And they cost you a lot. (laughs) In many different ways. No, you love them. and And it pains you, doesn't it? It hurts your heart when your children disobey. Right? When they displease you through their rebellion. This is... This is what I want you to have in mind when we pray, forgive us our debts, right? Because we know we've sinned against God and we continue to sin. And God is working in us, praise God, by his spirit to make us holy as he is holy. Because we're incapable of that in and of ourselves. There is nothing in you on your own, brother and sister. Right? To, to, to make you right with God. So this is why I continue to look to Christ and look to what he has done for us and the work he accomplished in our place. So, so we know when we sin, what does the scripture say? We have an advocate. 1 John 2, 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Right? That's, that should be our desire, not to sin. We don't want to displease our heavenly father. But if anyone does sin, yeah, and we do, We have what? An advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Hallelujah. So we go to Christ for our salvation and forgiveness for our sins, past, present, and future. And we continue to go to Christ for forgiveness of our sins now. Because we know we have displeased God. And sin has consequences. And sin incurs a debt with God. And and we come to Christ relying on sin his righteousness, and his work in our place. We continue to go to Christ when we sin for the redemption that he already accomplished to be continually applied to us. Think about the inverse of this when we say, when he's telling us here to to pray, to confess our sins and seek this kind of forgiveness when we don't confess our sins. What does that do to us? When we don't confess our sins, if we're in Christ, does that, does that change our standing with God? It doesn't, right? We're still children of God. Isn't it awesome that when you don't sin, you, you know, it's not like you're you're in salvation, and you're out of salvation, right? When I'm living holiness, I'm in. When I fail God, you know, it's back and forth. What a horrible place to live. And some people have that theology that they can lose what they did not earn. That somehow... They can unsave themselves even though they had no responsibility for their own salvation, right? Praise God for his work of salvation that is full and final and complete. And everyone that Jesus died for and everyone that he saved is going to be there on that day. Thank God for that. Thank God that God is concerned, right, and does everything, right, that in his power to preserve us and keep us so that we do persevere to the end. So we don't it's not like we're jumping in and out of this thing, okay? That's not but when we don't confess our sin, how many Christians are laden with guilt and shame because of unconfessed sin in their life? And the longer that goes, the harder it is for them to come to the Lord to confess. To 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 seek a reconciliation, of of of, of a separation that's there because we know. We disobeyed God, we failed God, we sinned, we can, we continue to stumble in this in this way, and, and now, now it's hard for us. Yes, periods of my life I struggled with that. And it, it was hard for me. And as days went by and I'm like, Oh I can't look at God, you know. <laughs> right? That's a failure to understand and grasp the gospel, right, and what Jesus has done for us. But in unconfessed sin as, as that goes on in our life you know, produces that in us, a guilt and shame that keeps us and, and from going to God. And it robs us of the joy of our salvation, doesn't it? It really robs us of joy. In Psalm 51, we find David confessing his sin, right, repenting, and he prays for a renewal of his relationship with the Lord. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation, he prays. Why? Had, his joy had to be restored because his joy was lost through his sinfulness, right? So we need to confess our sins, looking to Christ's work and forgiveness that we can only find in him. And when we do that, this, this healing balm of grace is applied to our soul, right? And just that weight of that guilt and shame maybe we have felt is lifted, that heaviness we were walking in and feeling like maybe God is displeased with us. No, when the grace of God comes upon us by his spirit, what happens? That's lifted off of us. And there's a joy that enters our heart. And we remember, I'm still a child of God. I'm still loved by God. Right? It's a beautiful thing. From that forgiveness that we receive from him flow the blessings of knowing that we have peace with God that there's no condemnation, and that our sins are not counted against us. So confession of sin, brothers and sisters, is an important part of our daily life of prayer. It must be. It must be. Cultivate that habit in your life. You've heard preachers say, keep short accounts of sin, right? That's what they mean by that, right? When you sin, don't, don't sit there and wallow in that. Turn to him. Now, there has to be proper contrition, Right? We don't just sin, you know, flippantly and just, oh, he's going to forgive me anyway, right? That should never be the desire of the believer. Someone who truly has the Spirit of God knows that when we do sin against him, that grieves the heart of God, and we know that we can sense that. We can sense that we've grieved God. We have the Spirit of God in us. That's right. Paul wrote, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God indwells you. When you sin, you're going to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You know it's there. That, that immediately is your prompt to come to the Lord, right, in confession and receive the forgiveness that is yours in Christ Jesus. So have you done that? This is more than just saying, oh, God, I'm sorry, I screwed up again, right? No, confession of sin should be done with examination of heart. Again, this is not a morbid introspection of your sinful behavior, I always, what was uh, our continual admonishment here is don't look at your sin, look at your savior, right? That's what we're supposed to be doing. But we examine ourselves, right? To make sure our confession isn't something superficial, something casual, right? Think about whole areas of your life that are are unexamined maybe. Your thought life, pride, self-righteousness, hypocrisy, judgmental attitudes, envy, jealousy, covetousness. Think about, the careless words maybe you speak or the harsh words you speak to others or how you you treat, you know, your brothers and sisters in the Lord or your children or your spouse or your neighbors or your employers, right, or employees, how you treat God's church, right? And as we take a deep dive in examining maybe those aspects of our thought life or our heart and our behaviors, um, we see we don't measure up to the righteousness of God, that we're filled with, with rottenness at times, right? Uh, But we acknowledge that these are debts owed to God. And so we need to come to Christ and seek the forgiveness that he promises us here. Um, So make that part of your prayer life. Do keep short accounts, right? Trusting that he pardons our offenses and continues to work in us and change our hearts again for his glory. Your salvation, my salvation, is for his glory. Your ongoing salvation, my ongoing salvation, is for his glory. Your future salvation, my future salvation, when we are glorified, is for his glory alone. Quickly, I'm going to touch on this second aspect of where he says, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? We have people that owe us, too. Now, it's not money. It's people who sin against us. Anyone have someone sin against you? No? Man, I covet that. No, man. Look, what's assumed by Jesus in this prayer? What's assumed by Jesus is that we're seeking forgiveness from God because we have forgiving spirits, right? We are forgiving those who sin against us. Because we know the darkness of our own hearts and the great debt that has been forgiven us, we will not withhold forgiveness from anyone else who has sinned against us. Those who are forgiven of their own sins freely extend forgiveness to others. That is assumed in this petition. If you cannot forgive others... When they've sinned against you, it's because you still do not understand the enormity of your sin against a holy God. I've always found that people who struggle with forgiving someone that has sinned against them, who struggle in extending grace to someone else who has been ungracious to them, is that they just do not get the gospel. It's impossible to say you know the grace of God and not extend grace to someone else. It's impossible to say, oh, yeah, I've been forgiven, and then think you have a right to withhold forgiveness from someone who sins against you. That's a big deal. It's a big deal. And unforgiveness is a hindrance to your prayer life. It will be a hindrance to prayer. You're going to see how Jesus touches on that in a moment, right? Once we have seen that what others have done to us seems trivial, By comparison to our sin, it is easy to extend forgiveness. Think about the parable of the unmerciful servant or the unforgiving servant found uh, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 18. He was called before his master because he had to pay up. Now, his debt was enormous. The debt he owed was worth 10,000 times a a day's wage in that time. Millions of dollars. Three, four million dollars by some estimates. That was the debt that this servant owed his master. And he said, please, I don't have it. Give me a little more time. And what what does the master do? He forgives his debt. He pleads, he begs for forgiveness. And his master has mercy on him. He should have thrown him in prison until he could pay that debt off. Which meant never. Because there's no way he would be able to repay that debt but he extends mercy and he shows mercy to him and he forgives his debt. So this servant goes off and he goes to a person that owes him a couple hundred dollars. Pay up! And that person can, and that person pleads and begs for forgiveness and he shows no mercy and grace to that individual and has him thrown in prison. The point of that parable is that servant did not realize the debt he owed in comparison to that minuscule debt that was owed him. And if his master could show him such, uh, such uh, uh, mercy and grace to forgive the magnitude of that debt, what right had he to withhold forgive, forgiveness of that debt that was owed him that was tiny by comparison? We have been forgiven of far more than anything you and I will ever have to give, forgive someone for. I don't care how grave you might think that sin is against you. It pales in comparison to all of our sin debt to a holy God. And he took that upon himself to forgive our debt that we owed him. What right do you and I have to withhold forgiveness? But, Dan, you don't know how that person sinned against me. You don't know how they hurt me. You don't know what they did to me. What did you do to God? How did you hurt God? Not just one time, but every day, repeatedly, over and over again, throughout the entire course of your life. When you forgive someone, and that doesn't let them off the hook. If they don't repent, if they don't turn to Christ, There is fiery judgment. They will be held to account. Only you're saying I'm not the one who's going to hold them to account. I'm not their judge. God is, and God knows how to deal with those who are impenitent. But I'm not going to withhold forgiveness from someone who's done something to me because I know that I've been forgiven of something far greater than what someone has done to me. So I can freely forgive. Is it always easy? No. Sometimes it takes time. Sometimes we're wounded quite deeply in a very personal way. Not all sins, all sins are equally damning. Not all sins have the same consequence. We know that. But I still have no right to withhold forgiveness from those who have sinned against me. And I hand them over to God. You you can deal with them, but God, I'm not going to hold that debt over them. I'm not going to lord over them that debt because you did not withhold forgiveness from me. And who I am is far worse than that person. Unforgiveness is a hindrance to prayer. That's why at the end of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 He tells his disciples the necessity of forgiving others. Uh, Verse 14 and 15 there of Matthew chapter 6. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's, That's hard, isn't it? That's hard. That's a stumbling block to prayer. When you say, I'm going to harbor unforgiveness in my heart towards that individual. Don't do that. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. That's the promise held to us here in this petition. So forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then the last petition there. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What is Jesus teaching in this petition? Question 113 of the Baptist Catechism. What do we pray for in the sixth petition? In the sixth petition, which is, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we pray that God would either keep us from being tempted to sin or support and deliver us when we are tempted. This petition is the plea of those who know the capacity for deceitfulness in their own hearts and their own susceptibility to the allure of temptation. All of us face the pull of the world. John writes in 1 John, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, that is something that assails us day in and day out. Our sworn enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil continue to buffet us. And that apart from God's enabling power and grace, we are weak. We are feeble in our war against sin and temptation. And this is why many struggle with sin and temptation, because they're trying to do it in their own power. I'm going to white knuckle this thing. I'm going to grit my teeth. It's just say no. Don't. Kind of like Biden recently, the deterrent to other countries doing we don't want to. Is we're just going to say don't. And we think I'm just going to say don't to my flesh and think that's enough. Don't you dare, devil. It's not in your power, and it's not in your flesh that you can do these things. It's not in your own strength. Who is this petition pray to? Pray to the Father. We're appealing to Him in this area here, All right? When we pray, lead us not to temptation, we're expressing dependence, once again, on God for help in resisting temptation because we cannot of our own. You and I are not above being tempted, you and I are, are not immune to sin and temptation. We are not exempt in any way, shape, or form from the pull of the world. None of us are. So we dare not trust ourselves. We place no confidence in the flesh to overcome temptation. This prayer means that we are aware of our extreme weakness and his extreme power, and greatness. Without the help of God, you and I are capable of the whole range of sin given the right circumstance. Every one of us, praise God that He is there to help us. That's why that great and glorious hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We all, we all face that. Our heart goes after these things. But you and I are, are to resist temptation, and that's what this prayer is about. We're not strong enough to keep ourselves in the faith. We're not strong enough to keep ourselves from resisting temptation to overcome the world. 1 Corinthians ten twelve. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That is a right and proper estimation of me right now and of you right now. You don't ever get to a place, right? Well like I got this. Got this sin linked. Oh man, it's been many days since I haven't used foul language or cursed. It's been X days since I've gossiped. It's been X days since I said a lie or lied to my parents. It's been X days since I looked at porn and we started to think, Oh wow, look at me. Be careful. Be careful. But anyone right here he's saying who thinks that he stands in his own power, in her own power and strength, take heed lest he or she fall. We are utterly unable to keep ourselves from sin without the help of God. God must give us the fullness of his spirit or we will falter, fail, and fall every single time. Every single time. So we pray this because we're utterly dependent on God. Recognizing our weakness and inability, and placing our confidence and trust in Christ. What did Christ do? He resisted temptation perfectly every time in our place. Do you think the only time that Jesus was tempted was when he was in the wilderness being tempted by the devil? Every day of his life, just like you and I have been tempted, he was tempted. Certainly, we find a temptation in the garden scene, don't we? Which is why he prays, oh, if there's another way in his humanity, let this cup pass from me. But what did he do? He yielded himself to the Father. Every day, he resisted temptation. He who knew no sin, who was without sin, right? Hebrews says, tempted in every way, yet without sin. This is why his righteousness is perfect, and because he attained that on our behalf, that can be imputed to us. But you and I are not Jesus, right? We struggle in this area. We are weak in this area, and we need the Spirit's enablement and power in this area. And the awareness of our weakness, right, drives us to our knees in prayer. Lead me not into temptation, So that's the first part of that aspect when we pray then. The second is this, so there's dependence, but it's also an acknowledgement that our Father is the Lord over every circumstance of our life. This is important. This is important. The second aspect of this is deliver us from evil, or some translations say deliver us from the evil one. Both are in view there, evil and the evil one, okay? We know the scripture tells us that it is the Lord who orchestrates all things in his world. And that all things for God's people, for those that he's called, right, all things work together for their good. That means that though God himself does not tempt us to sin, right, that's what the apostolic writers tell us, God does not tempt We cannot say we've been tempted by God. What does he do? He does plan for times of temptation and testing in the life of his children. He does permit and ordain for us to encounter temptations and trials and testings. Why does he do that? Well, James tells us, right, for the testing of our faith. For our ongoing sanctification. It is how you and I grow in grace and grow in godliness. James chapter 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Not if you meet, when you meet. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God perfects us through times of temptations and trials and testing. So, our prayer, lead us not into temptation, right, is an acknowledgement of that. God, we know you may be permitting and allowing a temptation in my life right now. And what is that for? It is for me to turn to Him in, in utter dependence and to avail myself of the grace and power and help that is mine in Christ Jesus by His Spirit, right? To pray, lead us not, is to pray, Lord, keep us from circumstances where we might give in to temptation. Because we might find ourselves in those. There's at least three categories, right? People, places, and things. These are areas you and I can be tempted in. There are people who lead us into temptation, aren't there? Bad associations in our life, right? Paul writes, right? Bad company corrupts good morals. We know that, right? If we're around certain people, they can lead us into ungodliness. For whatever reason, they draw out the worst in us. <laughs> they draw out sin in us and tempt us in these areas. They cause us to stumble. Right? There's there's some of you who may have coworkers who are very flirtatious with you. They know you're married and they don't care, right? Lead us not into temptation. Again, those who encourage ungodliness in our life, they don't lead us to Christ. I'm not saying don't be friends with people who are, not, who are not believers. I'm saying don't associate with people when you're around them. It's almost like you're not even a Christian. Like you don't even know God. There's something wrong with that association. Lead us not places, right? There are places that arouse a spirit of discontent in us. Maybe it's stores. And I think, well, maybe that's kind of silly. But when you go there, right, and you drive by that Ferrari dealership, man, and all of a sudden, like, I want that. I don't want a Ferrari. But when I go through Guitar Center and Sam Ash and other areas, I do have a spirit of, you know, discontent at times because I want one of those things that I don't have. I'm going to consider some of those places internet sites, particular websites porn yes and other things right that arouse lust and we're tempted to lust in those areas right places that might stir up sinful tendencies maybe if you, some of you have struggled with certain addictions in your past and if you're in a bar or in a particular establishment that serves a lot of alcohol it it does something it stirs up something in you in in, in form of temptation what are some other what are some of the things that we need to to not be led into temptation in. I think time-wasting entertainment is one of the biggest ones that we face. And we are just tempted to be passive in our life, right? So it's easier to sit in front, you know, uh, of the television or on our tablet and just stream endless content, you know, just for because I don't have to engage with it, okay? Lead us not to temptation. There are foods that entice us to gluttony. We start eating, and we can't stop ourselves. There's things that can become idols in our life, good things, right? And usually idols are good things that become ultimate things in our life, and we give ourselves over to them. So our prayer is, Lord, lead us not into temptation in these things. I like how Pastor Terry Johnson, in his teaching on the Lord's Prayer, uses examples from the Bible in this, in in how to pray lead us not into temptation. He writes, if I lack Joseph's strength, keep me from Potiphar's wife. If I'm vulnerable to the flesh like David, keep me from Bathsheba. If I am a coward when persecuted, keep me from circumstances like Peter's on the night of Jesus's betrayal. If the good opinion of others is a snare to me, keep me from opportunities to deceive like those encountered by Ananias and Sapphira. If I'm tempted to love the world, keep me from the path of Demas who, having loved the present world, deserted Paul. That's a good way to pray. You know, We see examples in Scripture and go, oh, I don't want to be that. Keep me from those things. What are those things in your own life? What are those areas that you know, every time I'm around this, every time I see that, I'm tempted. It, it, it somehow snares my soul. It somehow captivates me in a way that I want to sin. Praying, lead us not into temptation, is about humility, right? Humility before God, a recognition of how vulnerable you and I are. And if we find ourselves tempted, if we find ourselves under the attack of the evil one, you and I can cry out for rescue. That's what Jesus is saying. Because you're going to face this every day of your life and daily, you and I should be praying, Lord, lead us not into temptation. Lord, rescue me from this temptation. Rescue me from this snare. You and I have a real enemy, whom scripture says prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He opposes God's people with unholy ferocity to ensnare us. He disguises himself as an angel of light. His servants disguise themselves as servants of unrighteousness. To what end? To deceive us. To deceive. He plots and schemes in his war against the saints. He tempts and seduces us to gain a foothold in our life. And scripture tells us not to let him gain a foothold. That we have to resist him standing firm in the faith. That we have to put on the whole armor of God to stand in the day of wickedness and evil. It's what we're called to do. That's very real. The good news for us is... Our foe, our enemy, the evil one, he's already been defeated. He's already been defeated. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. We've been delivered from the power of sin, and it is an ongoing thing. Every time we yield to temptation, it's like we're putting that yoke of slavery, of bondage back on ourselves that you and I have already been freed from. God, we can come to him and pray, Lord, rescue me from this temptation. Romans chapter 16 says that the devil will soon be crushed under our feet. An ongoing reality in our life. But look at this beautiful promise in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, when you and I are tempted. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. A lot of good news in this passage. The first one is the temptation you face is not exceptional. Fact is common. (laughs) It's common to all of us. You know, you're not going through something. You're not being tempted by something that no one else in the world has ever gone through. You're not going to all of a sudden be tempted by a first in this world. All believers, all believers are struggling with temptation or facing temptation or being, are being placed in situations where they can be tempted. You are never going to be tempted beyond what a normal, born-again, spirit-filled believer can resist. Nothing beyond your ability. Isn't that good news? You're not going to find yourself in a situation and go, "I have there's nothing I can do here. Just throw my hands up in there, you know. Just just go go with it because it's just, I can't. If you're in Christ, there is no temptation that will overwhelm you to the point where you are incapable of resisting and enduring to the degree that you cannot cry out for rescue. But every single time you can. Oh, we choose not to. We give into the flesh. We yield to temptation but not because you can't, but because you want to. What happens when we cry out for rescue? Here's three ways that God rescues us. The first is he gives us strength to overcome the temptation, to resist. That's what we pray for. Lead us on temptation, but deliver us from evil. One of the ways he delivers us and rescues us is to give you the resistance capacity that you need. The second way is that he removes you from the tempting circumstance. I think of Joseph as a great example of that, right? That tempting circumstance was every day Potiphar's wife. Come on here. Come on here, lover boy, into my chambers. What did he do? He removed him from the tempting circumstance. And you go, but he went to prison. Yeah, but he was removed from the tempting circumstance. That was better, right? And the third way is that um, he removes us from the tempting circumstance. That was my point for that one, but he removes the tempting circumstance from us. We always tell parents, you know, who are praying that with bad associations with their kid or maybe there's a relationship that has re- been really destructive through their life, pray them out of your kid's life. Pray that tempting circumstance to be removed from them. We can pray for those things. So those are the three ways God delivers us. And daily, we should be praying for the Lord's deliverance from temptation uh, to be strengthened against spiritual attacks. Those are the three petitions that are about our concerns. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I shared with you, I like to include the, the concluding doxology that is traditionally found in this prayer. And like, well, we didn't read that. It's not. in you look in your ESV, and it's not there. But you'll see a footnote, right, in your ESV translation or some of the other translations. Why is not, why isn't that there in my translation? Now, if you have the good old King James Version, it's there. Well, how did they know to put that in there? What's wrong with these ESV translators? They missed this one. It's a good one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Right, And we kind of remember the Lord's Prayer with this concluding doxology. Well, what happened? Well, the King James translation and some of those older ones use manuscripts that are later manuscripts, like the Byzantine manuscripts, late 4th century, 5th century um, manuscripts of the Greek New Testament, okay? And this doxological statement was appended to the Lord's Prayer in those later manuscripts. So that's why you'll find them in the King's James uh, that uses what's called the text, Textus Receptus based on a lot of these manuscripts that are dated older than some of the manuscripts that are used with your more recent translations, uh, these are based on manuscripts, the Alexandrian uh, manuscripts that are much earlier, like from the second century, and considered to be more reliable, right? Because why? They were closer to the original source material. Second century is closer than the fifth century, right, okay, in the timeline of things. So your ESV translations, your NIV, and others uh, that are more recent use those new, those translations that are earlier and closer to the the original Greek uh, New Testament texts and, and so this is why you find it outside of there so what why is why is this still then considered something that would be okay for us? well for one thing, most of the early church fathers actually included this this doxology in the Uh, their repetition of the Lord's Prayer. In fact, it was probably part of the liturgy of the early church. We find that in a document from the late first century called the Didache. And and this, in essence, was a training manual, uh, a discipleship manual for Gentile and Greek, Greek converts to Christianity. The Lord's Prayer is written in the Didache that was used to teach and disciple believers, and the Lord's Prayer there has that doxological phrase in it. So it seems like it's something that the early church had. Some say, well, this was something a scribe wrote later on, and that's why it was added there. Uh, and then somehow it was omitted as these New Testament texts uh, have been copied and transferred over the centuries itself. But there's evidence that the early, earliest aspects that we can find in the early church incorporated as in the part of their Lord's Prayer and their liturgy. Um, so I take the side of what J.I. Packer writes about this statement. He writes, it's not in the best manuscripts, and by best he means more robust manuscripts. There are more Byzantine manuscripts of the Greek New Testament of that later, those later manuscripts than there are of the Alexandrian, the earlier manuscripts. That's why he writes, it's not in the best manuscripts. Nevertheless, it's in the best traditions, right? Because the church has historically included it at the end of the prayer. Right? So we like it. We add it because it's biblical, right? It's biblical. And there's a parallel to this doxology in David's prayer uh, when in the consecration of the construction of the temple. Uh, and and when, you, when you see it here, you're like, wow, okay, I'm saying the same thing. First Chronicles 29, 11. Yours, Lord is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. I think that's pretty good. It's very similar to what we're saying there at the end of the Lord's Prayer, that element of praise. So since it's been regarded as scripture by the early church, we believe it's appropriate to include it. If you're like, I don't want to include it, I'm KJV only okay. You might still be in heaven with that one. Okay. <laughs> All right. You know, I'm kidding there. Question 114 of the Baptist Catechism, and we're closing here. What does the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer teach? The conclusion of, the Lord's pra- of our Lord's Prayer, which is, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Teaches us to take encouragement in prayer from God only, and in our prayers to praise him, ascribing kingdom, power, and glory to him, and in testimony of our desire and assurance to be heard, we say, Amen. It's a, the doxology is a declaration for God to enforce the petitions because He can, because He's able. Why? For His is the kingdom and the power. And the glory forever. He's the sovereign king. He is the ruler over all things. and because he's our Father, we trust that he's willing and able and ready to answer these petitions for the glory of His great name. That's why we pray this. That's why we can add this, this prayer, this of praise, this petition of praise there at the end. It's on the basis of God's ability to do the very things we are asking him to do. And to do it forever. Why? Because his kingdom, his power, and his glory are forever. His glory will never be diminished. Nothing about his power will ever be minimized. His kingdom and his power will never be overthrown. So we pray with confidence because these things are so. Why pray if you don't believe that God is sovereign and able to do the things that we're asking him to do? You're wasting your breath. But because he is, and we know that he is, we pray with confidence. We ascribe praise to him. and that's We end this prayer with how he began. We began with praise in the prelude, our Father in heaven, and we conclude with praise because he alone is worthy. Doesn't that cause your heart to overflow with praise? Knowing that your God, your Father, is ready, willing, and able to hear your prayers, When you pray about his concerns for his glory, his name, his kingdom, his will, he hears those prayers. And then because we're praying with a view to his glory, we petition him with our needs, our requests, independence of him, acknowledging who he is and who we are. Do you have a great passion that God would be worshiped and glorified and honored for his name to be hallowed? For his kingdom to come in fullness and power. For his will to be done. For he to be worshipped and obeyed on earth as he is in heaven. Do you pray with God's glory in mind? Do you look to him as the source for your every need? Your daily need? Do you depend on him for that? Do you seek the riches of grace and forgiveness that are found in Christ alone through the confession of sin and extend forgiveness to others? And do you find refuge and shelter from sin and temptation in the strong and mighty God who can keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy? If you believe that, if you depend on him that way, then praise him for that, for his alone is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.